yes, you need to get to know yourself, period, because that's the baseline. And you need to be at a place where you can be humble and understand your values and understand what's important to you. However, to be successful in this world and to change the world and have an impact, if you're so busy working on yourself all the time, when are you busy working on we or us? And so the interpersonal conversations and the us are just as important as the me. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I appreciate you having notes. I have a feeling you won't use any of them, but I appreciate Probably you doing not. it. Probably <laughs> not. It was more because I had, I was like, don't forget to mention this more than anything. Like if you can, but if it doesn't come up, I don't care. I, There's a term in coaching called dancing in the moment. What's so that like, mean? It just means like you go with whatever's there. And okay. so like, we're just going to dance. Okay, so, good. Yeah. <laughs> Are you very like media trained and everything? For sure. I've, I've worked for CBS, Yahoo, right. That's why ESPN. Do you, think yeah. it, do you think that helps or hurts? Honest question. I'll put it another way. Do you feel like it takes away from you? I think it does. Like, like don't, don't you get just a watered down version of yourself? You do. And it's so focused on voice inflection and bringing people in, things like that. I'd rather banter with you, like in general and go back and forth and just be much more sort of flow and flow. Yeah. And so I do think it can potentially get in your way. It does, right? Because, well, now in the defense of media training, generally, if you're going to do traditional media outlets- right. They're not here to give you the warm and fuzzies. No, so they're not. They're trying to ask prying questions. And so maybe right. it's a function of media training. Maybe it's just a function of people are trying to always get other people in hot water. Yeah, maybe. That could be it. I think it's also like how to talk about bad news and maybe the best way possible sometimes with all that's going on in the world. So that's part of media training that could, I guess could be good and not so jarring. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of that going around too. Yeah. So. so when you coach someone to dance in the moment when it's not like a podcast, mm -hmm. what's the coaching? Like, what does that mean? Dancing in the moment is part of a framework. I actually went back to get certified as an executive coach. So we have a framework. And one of the things that we believe is that you actually hold all the answers to your life. My job is just to ask you questions to help steer you in that direction. So dancing in the moment is sort of a technique that says, let's just address whatever's here right now. You could be screaming at me right now. You could be deciding that like, you just want to be funny this whole time or very yeah. serious. We're just going to go with what's here. Yeah. Like we're not going to try to change it or control it or fix it. Yeah. We're just going to keep going. And your methodology of dancing in the moment is to be Socratic, meaning it's just questions. The coaching is yeah. for this type of coaching that I was trained on. I'd say dancing in the moment can also be questions, curiosity. You are encouraged not to tell as much. Like you're not going to show up as a consultant in a uh -huh. dancing in a moment situation. Uh -huh. You're going to show up more as leading from behind, uh -huh. if that makes sense. Yeah. Or beside. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. I have a picture that I wanted to show you. Okay. I wanted to start oh, there. Oh no. This is like barely a picture, but do you know what this is? Oh, <laughs> I do. Look look at Megan Mitchell in that picture with me. This is when- What um, a bad, I could draw did that. You actually, I hope that you didn't actually see the actual picture. <laughs> this is a newspaper clipping, it's right? It's a very 80s looking haircut right there. This is the first time I had made the Olympic developmental program as a youth playing in my hometown. And my hometown was very excited. And apparently. there was a clipping in the newspaper. Correct. And how old were you? I think I was- 
12 in that picture or a 13. So I was I had made the under 14 ODP team, but I think as a 12 year old, which is unheard of because like you should be playing for the under 12 team if you're 12. So I guess the town was very proud. Isn't that a good picture? <laughs> I guess it's fantastic. You could yes. take it all the way home. I was a soccer player growing up. Oh, neat. And I remember thinking in middle school, the people that were making ODP, I was like, wow, those are some superstars. And you're making ODP on the U14 team as a 12-year-old. Yeah. You were good. I got lucky. My cousin, Mike, I'll never forget, he was like, do you want to go play soccer? I was nine. I was like, well, I, I don't know. I've, I've never played soccer. He was like, well, everyone's doing it, so you should just play. And so I just showed up at practice one day in the middle of a park. They were having trials for the Swickley area soccer team, which is where the town I grew up in. I was just good. I could just dribble a ball yeah. naturally. I don't know why or where it came from, but yeah. my father is Italian, born yeah. in Italy. So yeah, we, in you know, we had an affinity. Yeah, yeah, maybe I had it in my blood. But he didn't play soccer when I was a kid or anything like that. And then I just showed up and I just could dribble. And I was like, wow, this is fun. And three years after that, you were really good. Yeah, I just kind of got addicted to it. Like I loved it so yeah. much and it brought me a lot of joy and it was a way for me to connect with my friends. And um, I could only play on the boys teams at the time. There were no girls teams. Really? Which I think helped a lot because that was the first girls team that I started playing for all girls team at the time. And I think playing with boys made me better, faster. I'm going to butcher this, but have you read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? Yes, you know, I the have. hockey team example that totally. he uses. Do you feel like that applies to you? I think it does because... Can you t explain the hockey team example? You explain it. Okay, fine. I'll explain it. All right. So basically, if you're young, there is a lot of statistical correlation that says that those who were playing in an age group that was above, it was birthday driven. So if they were on the cusp of a birthday, they could either play in the league that would be younger than them or older than them. And if they were playing in the league that was older than them, it would accelerate the child's development in that sport because they're constantly playing against people that are better than them. And so they have to be better. Yeah. And so it improved their game at a much quicker rate. Exactly. And my, you know, it's funny you just said that and you reminded me that my parents who had never read that book because it wasn't out yet, put me in kindergarten at age four because I was on the cusp. I was born January 17th. So the decision was, do I hold her back a year or do I send her ahead? And the truth is probably not that I was like super intelligent or anything like that. It was probably just like, get her out of the house. Like yeah. she has a lot of energy and just wants to go to school. So I started ahead in school. And what that probably did was at the beginning, give me some confidence because I could kind of hang with five-year-olds yeah. like at the time, which I thought was pretty cool. And then going into this, it was sort of the same thing. I don't think I sort of developed this knowledge set or maybe didn't even know it subconsciously where if I could thrive with folks that were older, whether it was sports or school or anything like that, great. It improved my confidence. So when I got to play soccer and I was doing well with my peers and then got onto the all girls team and yeah. was younger, I didn't really think about it. Yeah. 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 So I was also a cusp baby September. Okay. And so I was always the youngest in my class, but that also meant I was the shortest, yeah. you know, that also meant I was the most immature. I, I've been there. <laughs> and so I, it's funny in some ways, yes, I think it accelerated my development in general. I think there's other things that it also did too, that were positive in some ways. I always felt like I got bullied, you know, like I always felt like that chip on my shoulder now started when I was a little kid because I was always playing catch up in some way. Anyway, I think there's By the way, it, there's a lot there. I was definitely bullied. I remember the kid's name who came up to me and said, Nana, 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 you're four years old in kindergarten. It'll stay with you forever. I think it, over time it's kept me humble 
Like I've never I thought of myself as someone that's conceited or arrogant or yeah. things like that. I even thought about it twice. Well, oh, wow, you're 12 and you played on under 14 team. Like, yeah, that's just what I did. But that wasn't what was important to me. It was just maybe just being determined, a determined person yeah. like, at the time. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. When you were growing up at the dinner table, was it achievement oriented? Was it your dad? Do you have siblings? Was your mom there? It's a great question. I would say no. My dad, again, born in Italy, met my mother in high school Mm -hmm. when he came over. They literally high school sweethearts. Cute and like, really? Like, that's the bar I have to be held up to. My parents have been together for that. They're still together, still love each other very much. I have one brother who's amazing. He and I are very close. His name's Rob. And it was more very just familial. Like we, we were very much like, how was your day checking in, just making sure everybody was happy. It wasn't about like, did you score a goal today? Yeah, that was, it wasn't about the goal. It was like, did you have fun playing soccer today? How was it? I was probably the one at the table that was more like, I didn't score a goal today. I'm disappointed. Or I think I'm a little bit of the black sheep in the family where I was probably a little bit more naturally competitive than my family. They weren't like pushing me into soccer or pushing me into anything. And I think that's why I have a lot of firsts in my background. Like I was like the first to play soccer at a competitive level, first to go to a four-year college. In your family. Yeah, in my family. Uh, My mom's in real estate, my dad's an engineer, but they put themselves through different types of schooling, you know, night school, things like that. My dad was one of seven, Mm. you know, not a lot of money, things like that. So they were just proud that I was pushing forward and making the right decisions. There there were other moments in my life we can talk about where, you know, they came into play in terms of helping me make decisions, but we had very different ways ways of doing things. Did you go pro? I did. I played, I'll call it using Will Ferrell's movie, semi-pro. So I was one of the first women to play for what was called the USISL here in the United States back in the day. And I played there. I think we made $75 a game or something like that. So I would say that was the highest level that was afforded to me at the time. And I wasn't able to go any higher just because of my age and what was happening. So the short answer is, I guess, yes-ish. Yeah. And you went (laughs) to school to play soccer? I did. Yeah, I did. And also, but I did so, it's funny, when I was being recruited, there were X amount of schools that really offered women's soccer at the time. Some of the big ones like UNC, Chapel Hill, one of the reigning champs of the United States, and others did. I tried to go to Duke last minute. They had just started a women's soccer team, but I had missed the deadline. So I was thinking maybe I'll start locally and transfer. I ended up making the decision both for academics and for my long-term and for soccer, knowing that like, I wasn't sure like where the career was going to go. Yeah. So, and I can't help myself, but when did the DJing come? I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, where did DJing come into the mix? DJing random. Like I just, I've always loved music. Yeah. It's just been part of my life huh. forever. I had a friend, her nickname was Zippy and I played soccer with her here in San Francisco in my 20s and 30s when I first moved here and I met her. So it didn't come in until then when, when I moved from New York here at the age of 29, the thirties were my favorite decade. Like I had so much fun here in San Francisco cause like dot com was booming, everything going on. And we just started hanging out when we were going out for drinks and, and with it, with each other. And I took a class, I think it was a meetup group to learn how to DJ one day. And she had taught me how to do it. And then one day she invited me to the bar one night to DJ with her. And I like totally. Tell like, me you still DJ. I, <laughs> I do. Please. I still buy equipment too often. Oh, I'll just say that. Gosh, and I will play so with cool. things. There's this little device from Japan called the OP. People will know what it is. And it's like a mixer. And it's only it's only like a foot long. And you can literally travel with it. And like if I'm in my hotel room, I might do some like mixing. That is amazing. So I'll do that. I was that nerd who made playlists or mixtapes, I shall say, to everyone I sort of loved and was friends with my whole life. And that just was 
what I grew up doing. That is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so then I have to ask you, yeah. when you get in an Uber, do you put on music? What are the ground rules here? Can I request music or no? You could absolutely request music. There are three things the drivers... It depends on the driver. So you right. kind of want to read the car. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to say like the things you get dinged on with Ubers is slamming the door too much. This is the number one thing. You just slam the door. You're getting in or out. Okay. You'll get dinged for that. Just remember that. Okay. But the number one thing is if I feel like I'm getting in the car and the driver's like, hello, how's your day going? And we start talking. I'm normally not going to turn on music because I'd prefer to talk to the driver yeah. if they want to talk to me. Yeah. And I and really enjoy doing that. If they don't and they're sort of introverted and they're keeping themselves I'll probably just be on my phone in the back. Like yeah. I might have my headphones on in the back listening to music, yeah. but I've, if he or she checks out, I probably will too. Yeah. So I'm just reading the room. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But I imagine like yeah. for you, you're learning about the customer in some way. Like you, have a, you have a similar two-sided marketplace as we do actually in venture capital, which is that you have many constituents. You have the driving constituents and you have the demand side. You have the, right. the people taking the rides. We have LPs. And then we have founders. If I was in a room of founders or LPs by accident, or if I was at a coffee shop and I'm surrounded by them, I'm just trying to make a parallel. I'm going to ask them questions. That would make a lot of sense. They're one of my constituents. So I'm sure you're asking them questions about what's it like being a driver? What else would you like? Any like partnerships that we could do for you? Like, and do you tell them? It's so funny that you're going into that. Well, it's, there's such a thin line. And again, it goes back to like sort of assessing the driver in general. There's a thin line. I'm probably not comfortable telling them that I work at Uber because sometimes you, it, it sort of changes the experience. And I don't also don't want them to think, oh gosh, I'm driving around so-and-so like from Uber right. and, um, type of thing. When I do and I feel comfortable and I get into it, you, you're right. I am, as I do naturally, I'm just trying to relate to them in general as a person, as a human. And I, I naturally get in and I said, how's it going? Busy today? Are you tail end of your shift? Like just, are you done? Are you starting? And so I go into all these questions and then I'll say like, if I notice something like they might be selling something in the car, like we used to have these, you could buy certain products in the car. Now we have advertising in the car. There's certain experiences. I may ask them like what they think about those things. And are you making any money off these things? Like, why aren't you driving a Tesla? Like we have, there's a great program with Hertz, like where you can rent a Tesla for a couple hundred bucks. And they, they were like, oh, I didn't know about that. And we've got an amazing woman at Uber named Carol Chang, who's in charge of all of our earners. We call our drivers earners. And she's looking for all of our hands-on market research. But we also drive. I mean, as an employee, I'm also a driver. How like, often do you drive? I drive probably like two times a month. Two times yeah. a month. Mm -hmm. Couple rides. Cu a couple rides. And around, I'll Marin? around Marin. <laughs> yeah, I need to help out Marin. There's a lot, the demand up there and the supply after COVID kind of fell off. So we're, we're still getting back. So I'm helping off as much as possible. <laughs> Normally in Marin, you're doing two things. You're either going to the airport, yeah. like for the most part, or you're taking folks, you know, maybe up to Sonoma or Napa. It's like a very different experience than the city. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> when did you quit soccer? I retired at the age of 40. You retired? Yeah, at, at the age of 40. Because I played... Even while I was working in corporate here in San Francisco, when you, when you move to San Francisco, a lot of folks probably know this. And for those folks around the world, it's the social system of San Francisco is to like join a team. And the Golden Gate women's soccer was like the big thing to do. So I played on like the premier teams here when I moved to San Francisco from New York at the age of 29, 30 and played for a decade on a team. We were sponsored by an amazing bar here in the city called Blackthorn Tavern. And we used to go to Blackthorn Tavern every Saturday afternoon for our sponsor. And I played competitively till the age of 40. And then that was it. I just called it. My body was hurting. What's I, the I, highest level that you achieved? 
I played, I was on the national team sort of pool, I'll call it. So there's a, a pool where they bring folks in from each of the regions within the United States. And that means that I was sort of one of like maybe 40. Qualifying for? Qualifying for the national team, the women's okay. national team. So that was the highest level I played and had played a couple matches here against like Sweden and Norway at the time. Sick. Yeah, it was super fun and got to play with folks like Brandy Chastain and Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly, who were amazing. How old were you? I was in high school, so 87 through 89 were the years. And then what? You give up your soccer yeah. career and you go like, yeah. you go work? <laughs> That's a great like, question. Like, how, how, like, that was your yeah. life from nine years old. Yeah, and you go to college. So I went to college. Um, you know, Playing at the time. soccer, right? Yeah, Okay. right. So what happens was this was sort of high school to college and you're playing at a really high level in general. You go to school, you play at the highest level you can. And then, you know, at this time, you start making a transition. You start preparing for what am I going to do next? Mm. What happened with me was that I graduated at a time, undergrad, where the economy just was struggling at the time and, and it was challenging. And so people did three things. They went to grad school. I actually did get into grad school, but didn't end up going. And I ended up moving back home, living with my parents, and I ended up coaching soccer to pay it forward. So I coached ODP. I coached at the university level. And then I coached at the club level. One of my small claim to fame is coaching Carly Lloyd for the U.S. Women's National sure. Team. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. And then also helping out as much as I could. So at the time, I was working like four jobs just trying to I was taking some classes and trying to get prepared for whatever was next at the time. And then you eventually did go to business school? I did eventually. I the big trans a big transition for me was you know, at some point, I remember this conversation with my dad speaking of like, you know, was it an achievement based or, or what it was? It was really about just managing risk. And my risk profile is much higher than his. And for him, the conversation was kind of like, look, you're making like $8,000 a year. You're hustling. I think you're grossing 20. If you can barely survive, you know, you can't live at home forever. I was only there for two years. But it was sort of like, go get a real job talk, right? And so I was like, Argh. so I, I joked that I traded in stadium lights for fluorescent lights sometime along the way and decided to just go get a real job. I didn't know anything about business or things like that because I had studied, I was pre-med mm -hmm. as an undergrad and as a, in training and when I was taking my classes. And so I ended up working for, I got lucky. I ended up meeting a woman who knew one of my best friends, went to Bucknell University and decided to take a risk on me. And it was working at a startup called ICI, which was owned by Recruit Company Limited in Japan out of New York City to go help college students find jobs. And I was like, well, I know this audience because I've coached them and I know how to like work with them as a customer and as players. So teach me how to do marketing product and business development and I'll just go make it up as, as I go. So I, I got a job, I was making, I think like 25,000 a year outside of New York City. And there was the beginning of my fluorescent life journey. Do you have kids? I don't have children, I have fur baby. You have a fur baby. <laughs> if you had kids, yeah. would you give them that advice? I would say it was a big risk. If I'm looking back and talking to myself back then, I would probably say, trust your gut and stick to what you know and follow your heart is probably what I would say. Maybe this is my way of asking, do you regret doing that? Probably now, no. Back then, I probably did because I just didn't know how to function in a fluorescent lighting setting, if you know what I mean. So No, I don't. What do you mean? Meaning like I was like outside twice, three times a day at practice, super fit, tan, look like feeling good. Mm -hmm. Health health was amazing. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting in a chair all day, like 
wearing nice clothes and talking to people and I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing. So I went from being super confident about what I was doing to sort of completely insecure and vulnerable and not and just not being the best at what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I was just, for me, I think it was a very big lesson in sort of asking a lot of questions and learning versus like running around trying to be a know-it-all because you have this fear that like you have to go do that. Mm-hmm. So I was getting to know myself very quickly. How old were you? When I made that transition, I was tw- in my early 20s or mid 20s. And that company was eventually sold to Monster? Yeah. So the second company was after. So after a while, I had been in ICI for about a year. Things happened really fast during this time. And yep. of course, the dot-com boom was happening like that was a very year fast. Later, yeah. A year later, I literally went online to monster.com and I searched for a job. I met a lovely woman named Eve Yohalem. She's amazing woman who opera singer writes children's books now lives in New York City and she had started a company called studentcenter.com I was like oh cool I'm helping students that I saw the salary online I think it was like 40,000 so I got super excited I was like oh I can make a little bit more money and I think I'm starting to understand what I'm learning what to do here it was in the city and I decided to take a leap and I met her and while I ended up getting the job. I'm not sure how I got lucky. And we ended up getting acquired like six months later by monster.com. Got it. Yeah. So it was like, a, it was, this was like a fast train. That just makes moving. sense. Yes. The train continued. And I want to read a few different highlights back to you on your resume and then just pick apart some questions. And then I have another page of questions that I'm going to run out of time on, I suspect. But nonetheless, you then go to a company called Yodely. You're a director there of partnerships and channel strategy. You spend three years doing that. This is on the precipice of the bubble. Then you go to SAS Institute? Is yeah, that SAS Institute. Okay, okay. Yep. You spend four years there. Then you go to Yahoo as the head of business development. Pretty sick job at the time. Yahoo was the it company, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Google went public in what, 2000 and? Early 2000s. So okay. I'd say. Like Yahoo search four? was still a thing. Big time. Big time. We were competing and trying to not get surpassed by Google at right. the time. At the time you were the big player. That's correct. You were running business development. Then you went to CBS, vice president of business development for three years. ESPN, vice president of global business development for almost three years. Then eBay, head of global business development. You did that for three years. Then a couple of years off, off-ish, you were doing some consulting on the side. Then you went to Uber, which is where you are today as the chief business development officer. Along the way, you picked up a few board roles. The ones that I think are super interesting is you were the president of the UCLA School of Business, Anderson School of Business, and you were on the PGA Tour board for five years. One of the things that struck me was you were at all of what felt like the it companies at the time. And I'll tell you, Maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, but not long after you left, it lost a little bit of its luster. The polish started to wear off a little bit. Did you know that that was happening? You know, CBS in 2008, CBS, like this is an it company, ESPN in 2011. This was before the disruption had happened. Yahoo, to your point, this is before the disruption had happened. I just wanted your reflection on that. Yeah, it's an interesting observation in general. I definitely knew things were going to be changing transition-wise. I mean, my transitions are not always correlated with that premonition, if you will, but they sometimes were. And there are some specific use cases where I was... I knew that the next growth curve needed to be sought after, if you will, in general. And for me, a lot of that is opportunistic. For example, between Yahoo and CBS, my really good friend, Xander Lurie, who's a CEO here in the Valley as well, basically hired me. We joked that I was playing tennis with myself because I was negotiating a very large deal with Quincy Smith along with Xander at Yahoo. It was like one of my large $300 million deals that we did. 
with CBS. And then he ended up hiring me from across the table. So that's how I ended up over at CBS. And then from CBS to ESPN was literally just opportunistic. It was the, you know, 600 pound girl in sports. I'm obsessed with sports. You got to go work for the big guy. And I ended up getting, you know, an offer there and just decided to take it in general. But CBS was a really good experience as well. And this was like what I call my phase of like big, big complex deals and just trying to make those transitions. To your question, I don't think I was completely aware that this was sort of like the beginning of the end, but I probably did realize that there was a next growth curve that needed to be sought after at some point. Can I frame the question a little differently? The way that I simplify it is that they lacked the innovation that was necessary to keep up with the world that was changing around them. Could you tell from the inside? Did Yahoo know? Did ESPN and CBS know? I mean, at that point, streaming was there-ish. Yeah. So this goes down to what does the leadership team believe is going on, you know, versus kind of maybe the next level down. And in all these roles, I'm sort of like the plus one or what we call the next level down reporting into like the C-level. So I think one of my strengths is to be able to synthesize a lot of information, drive strategy and sort of see, I'm a future forward person. So I think seeing that future opportunity is something I think I'm pretty good at. With the business development function, which can mean different things to different people, business development can mean sales, it can mean corporate Mm -hmm. strategy, it can mean M&A. I try to make it rooted in product and about incubating the next S-curve. So if you look at some of my job descriptions, they may have hired me in to come in and do partnerships or M&A at the beginning. But what I saw when I got in there was, let's go build the next sort of business or growth engine within the company. So a couple of examples of that. At eBay, we were piloting eBay Now, which is kind of what Uber Eats does for a living these days, but it was trying to get, you know, same day delivery for eBay goods and services off the ground. And at the time, you know, we ended up doing all these great partnerships, putting the product in place. We got a lot of great data from our customers. The problem was like the math didn't work for us because we hadn't figured out how to work with the courier system and just the whole Uber model of having other people do it for us. There wasn't sort of the shared economy approach type of mentality. It was more, um, let's use the big guys like USPS and FedEx. And so those initiatives are what I was trying to push. That's what you're trying to push in general. And so that's where I either probably succeeded or failed many times trying to get these things off the ground. But the good news was for the leadership teams that understood that we needed that culture, they would give me the shot at doing that. And that's what I got really excited about. And I've done that over and over at each of my companies, ESPN as well, where that was the time where I remember them being devastated because I think Shaq had had announced his retirement on Twitter and oh my gosh, he circumvented ESPN. Right. So it was like, holy, no one knows how to talk digital. The reason I got the job at ESPN is because I was bringing Silicon Valley to New York and essentially I could talk APIs and I can talk like Twitter. And so my job was to do buy, builder partner strategy for like your next set of initiatives around bringing digital to this media company. And that's what made my job fun and able to be strategic on the job. I think the hard part is, you know, if you're not at the sort of highest levels or if you're not pushing through influencing or persuading, things could either fall flat or there's sort of an inherent culture or lack of growth mindset that gets in either my job's way or somebody else's way and sort of impede some of that growth, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And it's not lost on me that, you know, what has happened to many of these companies is now happening to the PGA Tour. It's yeah. just, it's crazy to see you living in some of these companies that have just been out innovated. It's unbelievable. You just mentioned a framing in passing by, build or partner. Can you explain that? 
Yes, buy, build, or partner is something I do pretty much every day. That's which like is, your job. Yeah, I'm looking at whether from a growth vector perspective of the company and scaling and just making decisions, like what are all the things that are available to us, whether it's hiring people, whether it's building the product from scratch, whether it's licensing technology, or whether we're gonna go acquire talent and IP, intellectual property, or whether we're gonna partner. And you know, the matrix that we tend to use is sort of like, how fast do we need to be moving? Do we need to own this core competency or not? And we're trying to make those decisions very quickly to drive whatever the next project is off the ground. And that's what I do every single day. Can you walk me through, if you're okay, at any point in your career, maybe a seminal project that you use this framework of buy, build, or partner and just walk me through it? Yes. Can you do that? I can. Let me think of the one I want to do that would be the most interesting in terms of those decisions. We can use an Uber example. In our day-to-day, one of the decisions that we need to make a decision on is our Maps technology, which is super core. And the Maps technology is the core of Uber's experience for both drivers and and riders. And it's getting smarter and and doing better things. We had to essentially make the decision to say, are we going to continue to be reliant for this technology? And it's public information now that we have a commercial partnership with Google in general, because there's probably other opportunities for us to think about. So for example, hypothetically, you know, there's a hypothesis that says, are there other things that we're going to have to do and not be able to do, like serve our own ads against the maps, or there could be some revenue opportunities that that are limited. Yes. We were evaluating if we were to trade off building the technology, how many engineers would we need? How long would it take? You know, how sophisticated it is? Do we need it for all markets versus our long tail startup markets versus our core markets? And what is the revenue opportunity associated with that in general? And then are there other folks that are starting to tinker with this and start to build it? Some of those things don't exist when you partner because you're restricted to sort of whatever they're giving you at the time. And we wanted to go to sort of a more customized approach. So we made a list of all the sort of things that we were looking for. And I think what we needed to do was just figure out and make that decision based on those trade-offs. And so now we're in an area where we're actually doing all three, where the like the decision we've kind of come to is to say, look, there is core competency and like 20 plus years of amazing intelligence with Google Maps that we should always be relying on because they're doing it and they're doing it well. But there's other third parties out there, whether it's TomTom or others out there that are complementary that we're gonna use in maybe different markets. We're going to go build certain custom features that we think are specific to Uber and our drivers and riders. And lastly, we're going to go acquire a couple folks for domain expertise and maps talent on the engineering side. And we're going to go buy them to basically hit on certain other features that we may not get from partnering. And so those are some of the things that we're working on in real time right now. And that plan, while it's still in development, you can kind of get a sense of like, how complex that can be, but also how helpful it can be to sort of outsource some things and not have to worry about driving up costs given how cost conscious we are as a company. It's funny because these are core questions that Uber has been grappling with literally since inception. Yes. Like these, this hasn't changed. No. Like if you listen to predecessors right. of you at Uber, they had the same challenges. That's right. The same trade-offs that they were deliberating. They don't go away. That's right. And what, to your point, what you're navigating, and I, I heard you ask this on another podcast, which I really appreciated, which is you're not just navigating the nuts and bolts of scaling and making those complex decisions. You're navigating the culture and psychology of it. And you had asked this before of one of your other amazing guests out there and um, basically saying something like, You're right, because here's a company that's rooted in operations. It's not rooted in engineering. We're not Meta, we're not Google. So 
it doesn't mean we don't have great engineering, we do, but at the same time, it's operations first. What that means is the short-term focus can outweigh the long-term. That's been corrected by Dar and team. I think Dar's doing an amazing job sort of balancing long-term sure. versus short-term. And then lastly, just sort of trust. There's this like inherent culture of like, how do you make trusted decisions to be able to rely on third parties because Uber actually is a build first culture and we want to build everything ourselves. So being able to navigate that and recommending partner and acquisition versus or sort of partner and buy versus build, bringing the organization along is probably one of the greatest challenges to get them convinced that that's it could it could be the perfect decision or the best decision. Yeah. But selling that through and the persuasion and influence needed to do that is something that needs to be you know, addressed. Yeah, it's still a Silicon Valley technology company. 100%. And so the bias is always going to be towards build That's versus right. buy. That's right. Because I also think that in these tech companies, there is a level of pride mm -hmm. that comes with being able to build. Absolutely. I was just talking to Claire Hughes-Johnson, yes. the Stripe COO. Yeah. And this came up when she was convincing the Collison brothers that we don't need to rewrite our applicant tracking system. Yes, we could make it the best in the world probably, but we don't have to do that. We can just do good enough right now. And in the future, maybe we can revisit that, but we can do good enough right now and build other things that are much more around our core competency. And she said it was this unlock moment for them because the long-winded point that I'm making is the bias is to build because you have a bunch of builders in the company. I listened to that podcast and I love Claren and I thought you guys had a really great conversation and I totally agree with Claren. What I would build on and pile on to what she said is, and sometimes you need third parties and other experts that are maybe fellow engineers that aren't working for Uber to come in and be that voice of reason mm. to say, we understand like you're amazing, like you have great ideas, like you're building your thing. But here's this thing that is solving for 85% of it. And if we implement it via partnership, it gets out the door in two months versus the nine months and the 50 people that you need to go hire to build it. So it's not about you. We still want you to manage that partnership yeah. and guide them. It's like a sense of belonging and impact that, that you want to make sure you're appealing to to these folks, if that makes sense. Well, it does make sense. And taking it a step further, it's probably uniquely tricky for you mm -hmm. because you're managing, again, going back to different constituencies now. Right. If the ball drops with Google... That I imagine falls on you, yes, right? Like that—that that is, right. you own that partnership, hundred percent. And you're also managing expectations on the Uber side. You're managing expectations on the Google side. Obviously, Google values the partnership. They're waiting around to figure out, okay, what are they going to do, right? There is a lot of competing priorities there. I always joke that. I always see business development folks hire the deal folks that want to go after the big shiny objects, but really the art and science of business development really falls on the back end once things are implemented and signed. Call that role partner management, call it whatever you want. But as you morph into sort of the management of that rock star or superstar using, you know, some of the radical candor language here is that you have to be able to navigate the matrix and the superpower is really like persuading and influencing and bringing people along, including the partner and trying to understand where you can always maintain leverage as a company over the partner to get the best out of this whole situation, but also creating value for one another. I talk a lot about building trust with folks, but also like getting everyone in a co-creation mindset versus like, we need this from you. 
you need to build this for us. Here's why, because we're going to get more revenue out of it. No, that was sort of the mentality that I walked into four plus years ago at Uber. It's more like, no, let's talk to the partner and co-create this thing together yeah. and then so, so have a solution that that's working for both parties. And we spend so many times navigating the matrix and trying to have that conversation because the, leveraging some of the things Claire was talking about, one of my tools for doing this is the insights tool because it's a tool that you can put into action and what is the, it? the insights tool is basically a behavioral tool that says that you spend 75% of your energy in a certain style. And so you're either an analytical blue, you're either a red, which is essentially like a driver, which is like your get stuff done person. Yeah. You're yellow, which is an expressive or strategic, and then a green, which is harmony. I want everybody to get along. Yeah. Okay. So that's my superpower when I go into like sort of have these conversations with folks. You figure out what color they are. In like 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and then my job. So the biggest thing I'd say, I listen to a ton of your podcasts, by the way. And the biggest thread, I'm like a synthesizer of themes uh-huh. and threads. Tell me. So is that everyone's focused on getting to know themselves and making that the sort of foundation of their human triangle. My challenge to the world is like, that's the me part of the equation, but there's a we and an us yeah. that no one has time to address because they're so focused on me. Yeah. What Insights does is it's great to know your color. What's even better is to be able to flex to other people so that you get out of your own head and learn how to be with that other person and drive productivity. My job is to, as an executive coach, in, in my mind, when I work with founders is like, yes, you need to get to know yourself, period, because that's the baseline. And you need to be at a place where you can be humble and understand your values and understand what's important to you. However, to be successful in this world and to change the world and have an impact, if you're so busy working on yourself all the time, when are you busy working on we or us? And so the interpersonal conversations and the us are just as important as the me. And so Mm. I, I use insights as a tool to say, yep, you know, I know my color, big deal. It's what's more important is that I'm walking into a room with a presentation or I've got to go convince the engineers to use the Google Maps platform and I'm walking into a room of blues or analytics. With analytics, what you know right away is that they process real-time information, but they're not going to be able to give you an answer in real time. So when I set up my meetings with a blue, I'll say to them, hey, here are all the facts. You ask a lot of questions because curiosity is what they want to be doing, is trying to problem solve. You give them three three days and say, I'm going to come back to you on Friday and we're going to talk again. Yeah. Go think about it. Yeah. The persuasion and influence part of that insights tool is really about understanding how to get people engaged so that you're driving for that productivity or driving for that decision. Yeah. But you're doing it in a way where you're meeting them and co-creating that solution together versus me walking into a room with a presentation that's all about me and like knowing my style and like you're so in your head that like you don't even know who you're talking to. In a given meeting, do you generally know what color you're walking into? Yeah, I prepare every meeting. My whole calendar is color coded with insights. You're kidding me. I know who I'm meeting with. I'm meeting with a blue. I'm meeting with absolutely every time. I prep my, my team laughs at me, but they not really. We actually use it as a language within Uber now. And if you talk to some folks on my team, they'll be like, Jen, you're walking into a room with a double red. And yeah, so we have like this system where we start to talk about like who we're actually talking to. If someone saw your calendar, okay, if the double red saw your calendar and saw that he or she was a double red, would that offend them? Is that a very personal thing? You know? Yeah, it's a great question. And to be fair, it might, yeah. especially for a double red. <laughs> what you want to explain to the double red is that it's a compliment. And what we mean by that is we just mean that we're walking into a meeting with a person that can get a lot done very quickly with limited amount of data. So what I would say to the double red is, listen, 
the reason I need to learn to flex to you. Like you're not the problem. Like yeah. I just need to make sure I don't show up yellow. If I show up yellow with a double red, it goes something like this. So, hey, Jubin, how was your day? Yeah, I had this idea. I was going to brainstorm with you, but I'm not sure like what's going on. I mean, right now I've lost my double red in 10 seconds because my double red is sitting there thinking there's five things that get, need to get done, three of which are the high priorities. I need data to make this decision and I need you to lay it out for me and tell me what you recommend. So every double red meeting I go into, me flexing to them is, hey, good to see you, Jubin. I know we want to talk about the MAPS product today. We looked at a bunch of data. We have three options for you guys. We're leaning towards B, but we want to talk about A and C. And we're going to get this done by Friday. We need to make the decision by Friday. That's every double red meeting. All I'm doing is restructuring it in their language to make the meeting more productive versus if I go in talking about brainstorming and ideas and they're going to be like, so I don't think Jen executes very well. You're trying to get productivity and drive for decisions and drive for, you know, whatever needs to happen or alignment at the time. And I'm trying to speak their language. And it also... I think gets people out of their own heads because most people when they're preparing a presentation or trying to persuade an influence are in their own heads and they're worried about how they're going to show up and what they're wearing and like things like that. It's the same thing in golf, by the way. I, it's, you referenced golf earlier. If you think about the pros, statistically speaking, for amateurs, the reason we're never going to become a pro is because we are in the back of our brain and sort of the hippocampus area because we're worried about the nuts and bolts on how we swing a golf club. If you think about a pro, they're not. When they walk up to the tee, they're not thinking about how to swing a golf club. They're thinking about it's 128 yards. I need to draw the ball because there's a tree in my way. And I'm thinking about like how I'm going to do it. And they're also just getting curious about it. They're like, hmm, if I do this, then that'll right. happen. So they're already in their prefrontal cortex up here and yeah. they're already in like a different mode. And what I'm trying to do with the insights tool is get people out of the back of their brain and into the front and be like, no, 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 you already know, you're already good at what you do. You already know who you are. Go worry about the person across the room because that's, that's what's going to drive growth forward. Uh, super fascinating. What color are you? You're every color, but I have three colors, what they call above the fold. So I'm yellow, red, blue, and the green is just under. Okay. And you have, I imagine, similar to you referenced Claire, where mm -hmm. she has pushers and pullers. And That's then there's right. ways to work with pushers and pullers based on their strengths and weaknesses. That's right. I imagine you have a similar set of green lights and red lights yes. for different colors 100%. that you come equipped with in your tool belt That's right. before a given meeting. Exactly. And the difference between... I was talking about like listening to your other podcasts. The difference between my challenge to folks is even for those pushers and pullers, you're showing up to those meetings, giving advice or reacting or dealing with that from what you know of yourself. What I'm trying to push other people to do with insights is to learn to deal with the pushers and pullers or different types and flex to each other, like get out of what's happening with you and hone in on them. Mm -hmm. Because if you do that, you're so much more successful. So yes, to your example, you know, with greens, it's not about me showing up. I should be prepared and have all the information I need for whatever this conversation is going to be. It's more about knowing that the screen is not going to want to hear conflict very well and is going to retreat under conflict. Yeah. And I've got to be able to keep them present and in this conversation, even if it's a hard one. What's the framework called? It's called Insights. Super, super interesting. When I left, cor I quit corporate once and I went to get, I, I'm certified as an executive coach. I don't believe in being overly assessed. Like there's a million assessment yeah. tools out there as many of your folks have talked about. I like the ones that you can put into action and yeah. feel like 
you're making progress, not only to get to know yourself, but also to get to know others. Back to that framework. So I literally only use insights. I teach the trust equation, which is a book called The Trusted Advisor by David Meister. And then lastly, I use the Enneagram. And those are the only three things I use because you could get to know yourself go travel the world, do your eat, pray, love tour, whatever you want to do. That's great. You should keep doing that. For me, it's about, well, then, you know, if you fast forward and people are reading their gravestones, things like that, they all say, well, oh, I just wanted to have an impact on the world. I'm like, mm. well, how are you going to have an impact on the world if all you're doing is working on yourself? Mm. Like, mm. so my question is like, how do you sort of transition into this mindset of like impacting others and impacting societies and impacting communities now that you know all this about your amazing self? Yeah. I want to revisit the trust equation thing and ask you about it, but- can organizations take colors on? Meaning, in your mind, when you're doing a deal with Google, or put differently, when someone's doing a deal with Uber, is there a general disposition that Uber could have as a color? Meaning, maybe in the early days of Uber, there was a red color associated with the entire organization. Maybe when you're doing a deal with a big company like a Google, there is some version of big company-esque something it's there. such a good question. The answer is absolutely yes. And it, there are two factors. One is whether you're doing deals along the S growth curve. So if we're talking like seed, you know, private companies versus big Fortune 500s, there is a color associated with them because culturally speaking, if you're hustling as a startup, you're an underdog. Yeah, you're definitely going to be in red mode. Like you're going to be, yeah. you're looking for your credibility deal. You're trading off perfection. You just want to get stuff done. That's your red. And it's going to happen every single time. If you're going to do a deal with folks that are a little bit more mature, whether it's an eBay, a Meta, or a Google, the culture of that company is absolutely going to come through collectively as a color. So we know that doing deals with Meta is a very blue experience. Like it's an engineer grounded company. You're going to have to know your data. Google's going to be the same way. And there's just a bunch of blue that's going to happen there. I think if you talk about media companies like the ESPNs, the World CBS, and contrast that, they are so yellow because you have this old school. Like three martini lunch. Absolutely. One of my favorite folks, back to the connection between media and golf again, is a, a guy named Sean Bratches. I call him the billion dollar man. Sean's amazing. Sean went from ES running sales at ESPN to F1 to the Live Tour. And, you know, so he's like this amazing guy. And literally he is right out of Mad Men, dressed to the T in the most amazing suit. He literally looks like he's right out of the 1960s. His hair is perfect. One day I get to ESPN and I'm with Lisa Valentina, who I love. She runs Disney sales, ad sales at this point. And she's pregnant. She's like eight months pregnant. And I, I'm just meeting her. I'm brand new at ESPN. And Sean's like, Lisa, Jen, I need you guys. I don't speak digital. I don't speak video. I got this guy. We got to go to lunch. We literally hustled through Central Park down to this restaurant. We were sprinting and Lisa was in heels. I was like, Lisa, I don't even know how you're walking this fast. <laughs> we get to the restaurant and he's like, I got my trusted advisors over here. Like, Jen, Lisa, go for it. So we start pitching on digital video and why it's so amazing and things like that. And we're late getting back to a meeting. It was literally a martini and steak lunch, by the way. Uh -huh, no no exaggeration. Yeah. And I was like, this is going to be my life in ESPN. This is like hilarious. And so, and he sprints us back. Like, he's like, we got to get back. We have a meeting late at the office. And I'm looking at Lisa going, you're literally like after that lunch going to sprint back in these high heels. And like, he's just like the most amazing guy. But the media companies are yellow and they are green and they are creative because they're rooted in the advertising culture. And so- it's a completely different deal experience and how the deals get done. And you've got to be able to, as a business development person, be able to flex to all of that because you're showing up with just different mindset on how the deal is going to get done. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> Trust quotient. Yes. It's come up through conversations with others as something that's associated with you. Yeah. What is it? So 
first of all, people love frameworks. So putting trust into an equation, I think it gives people a lot of relief because they can kind of pinpoint to where trust is it's breaking like putting, down. It's like putting grit in an equation. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it totally is. So it has four components. And what I like about it is, and it's interesting, If you, again, if you listen to people talk about trust, they really over-anchor on two of them and under-anchor on the others. Mm. And the others are the ones that really matter. So really quickly, it's just credibility, which is your words, your words matter, plus reliability, which is what you do, your actions, plus intimacy, which always throws people for a loop. It's your emotions, like, are, like do I feel safe around you? Divided by where everybody falls apart, it's this really fancy word called self-orientation, but all that means is, what is your motive? So it's your words, your actions, your emotions, divided by your motive. And what happens with motive is trust breaks down because it's the difference between the motive being about, it's all about you, and I'm doing this for me, versus my motive being about pushing something forward that's for the greater good and the bigger cause. And where this equation is interesting is when people talk about trust, when you listen to people talk about trust, what they're really spending most of their time on is the first two, which is credibility, like your words and your actions. The problem is folks aren't focused on intimacy and where their motive is because, or they're not listening for it. And that's where trust falls down and can be aligned the most. So for example, if you just don't feel safe talking to your manager because they're shutting you down or they're not flexing to you or there's something going on, or you know, you just don't feel safe in a group or, or even in a society, you're not going to have trust for something, mm -hmm. right? And so if, if you're a person that doesn't know how to make others feel safe emotionally, we have folks that I've worked with in the past that are super introverted or, or they're just awkward socially. And for folks that are natural extroverts and things, they just don't get it. And all of a sudden they're like, I don't feel like I can tell this person anything because I don't know if they're listening. They don't really talk like that's OK, but like that's also like a judgment. And like that other person doesn't know how to make you feel safe emotionally. And so there's this education that needs to go on in terms of like the feelings that you're creating in the room. And you, I think, again, back to your podcast, like, I mean, how many people have referenced like life is about how you make people feel like mm. that's all they remember. Mm. Right. And then lastly, on the orientation side, you know, look, we're not talking about total narcissism all the time. We're just saying that this is the part I listen to the most in my deal conversations, especially, which is when somebody is giving me an argument or trying to push something through, is it because they're trying to get a promotion? This is a personal thing. Like, are they pers are they driving this issue for like, why are we stuck here? Like, are we stuck because it's something that they're dealing with or they can't go sell it through? Or is it like really that philosophically, like the company hasn't bought into this decision and it's a greater problem that's in the way. So I'm trying to listen to the words. The way I do that is I listen for pronouns. So you're always going to use I, me and my, they, them, those, you know, us, we are like, you're going to use those words. And the number of times you're using those words is I'm looking for the pattern, not, but I'm listening for just how they're explaining something to me. Mm -hmm. Like, are they in I, me and my too much where it's like, okay, this is, and, and you know, and you start asking questions, you start to try to tease it out. Like, are you having problems with this or right. is it the company's problem? Right. Like, you know, so yeah, that's where I'm spending my time. What's the biggest deal that you've done? And what is the deal that you regret not doing the most? <laughs> Oh gosh, or those that you are botched. so good. Yeah, there's lots of boshes out there. So the biggest deal probably numerically that I've done that I worked on was probably when we made the decision to partner with Bing or Microsoft and Yahoo search business. So mm. it's so funny. I was at the beginning and the end of And it's even more funny how it all comes full circle. Yeah, I know. This is back <laughs> to playing tennis with myself, like with my friend Xander. So um, I revisited- Xander's coming on the show, by the way. He is. Yes. 
tell him I said hi. I miss him. He was my neighbor. I have a good story about him, by the way. Um, he's my I, he's also my 9-11 friend because we lived next door to each other in, in Pacific Heights here in San Francisco when I first moved here. And um, his family took me in during 9-11 because no we both had friends that were impacted. So it was, yeah, it was really wow. good. He's amazing. Anyway, he's been a great friend for a while and I owe him a catch up. But um, Sorry, Bing. Yeah, thank you. I yeah, got I, caught up I, on my friend. My no, no, I got caught I up on my friend. Wanted, yeah, so I, um, we had made a decision. I rejoined Verizon after it had acquired Yahoo and AOL. And I was helping Tim Armstrong. He had asked to sort of get some help with some cleanup before I had joined Uber. You know, we had made another buy builder partner decision about what we we're going to do with the search business. And we decided to, at the end of the day, just given sort of where Yahoo and AOL were going at the time, into content creation, into 5G with Verizon, mm-hmm. like lots of different focus areas, that it was time. And um, that was, you know, it was over a billion dollar commercial deal. When you get into deals that large that are not M&A oriented, like it's pretty rare that they're that big. And so big. We, we, yeah, big. When you're doing a billion dollar deal plus, how do you manage the pressure of it? You strike me as someone, and tell me if I'm completely wrong here, but that it is hard to pierce through your armor. Really? Like, uh, yeah, you, wow. d- you do. You do. You do. That's so funny. Like, uh, I hope I'm not showing up like that No, right now. no. You strike me as just someone <laughs> that would be, Yeah. you give me confidence in the sense that like I would want you in the trenches with me. Okay. Because your emotional band feels very consistent. That's a good thing when you're doing deals like that. So I I wonder, is that true? Slash when your armor does get pierced, when the Mm -hmm. pressure cooker starts to really cook. Yes. What does that feel like? Yeah. So I would say this was not a learned behavior that I had. I had to develop this muscle. Yeah. Because I'm yellow on insights by default, yellows under conflict usually do attack. Like what attack means is like, you're an idiot. That's what yellows usually do as a default back in the day. I would say, you know, back to your botched deal question too, like back in the day, that's probably what it was more like. I, I felt like I had to be confident through telling and advising and having information and sort of beating people up in deals because that was the way to do it and just destroying people on the way through. Cause why not? That was like, I was a trained soccer player. I just wanted to score goals and win. Yeah. It wasn't, and it was more about this winning mentality. And so I would say my emotional bandwidth was very up and down early in my career. What you're probably seeing now, this is so funny because when I went to get certified for as an executive coach, I did show up as like corporate gen, which is really funny. Right. But at the end of the like weekend, everyone was like, had called me silly putty, like, yeah. like Jen. Cause like yeah. all my nieces and nephews call me silly Jen. Yeah. Like that's like who yeah, I am yeah, like yeah. at the core. So I think I learned, you know, again, back to like just self-learning and getting smart about it. I think I'm coming across probably a little more, confident because I've just seen a lot and I know my emotions inside are probably going off. And my thoughts are probably ranging from everything from like, I love this guy. This guy's an idiot. Like this deal is stupid. Like I'll just say that in my head now, but you're just not seeing the outward impact of that because I've learned. I'm just self-aware. I practice being self-aware and I practice the we and the us. Like I practice a lot of just interacting with people. Like this is what you have to do to like be a deal person in general. And so When things explode, I'd say to answer your question, I still, to this day, I'm just much more conscious and aware of it. I will still probably get paralyzed a little bit. Like I'll freeze for a minute and then I'll just like want to do nothing. What's a minute? A day? A week? Yeah, I'll probably- An hour? In real time, it might mean that I like just need to end a meeting or leave the room. Like I'll take care of myself to be like, I just need to go take a walk. 
Like it might be that right mm-hmm. now because yeah. I'll be a little bit frozen sure. on something. And if I just need to go, I am not afraid to express emotions. So if yeah. I just need to go off at that walk or that's something, I might call a friend and just go off. Like yeah. I might just need to go off. Yeah, like yeah, seriously, yeah. like just yeah. get it out and really just let people know how I'm feeling about something. And then I come back and I compose myself and you guys, because then you get focused on like, where am I trying to make an impact? What's the output of this? Now I know the cast of characters that I'm dealing with. And then you just get into sort of flex mode. It's sort of like, well, all right, what do I need to do here to get this done? So I think my emotional bandwidth is pretty wide and, yeah. I, and I'm okay. probably pretty, I'm just probably like more, yeah, like You're a like dog. A duck. I'm probably more in control of it. So. And then tell me about a deal that you think back on that you botched that it's like you can feel it in your stomach still. Still, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I still, t- I tell this to my team now. If you ever tell me that there's a side letter involved in, in something, I'm going to kill you guys. No, I'm tearing. That's like my PTSD from this experience. But when I was at Yahoo the first time, again, back to like the peak Yahoo, there was a client that will go unnamed that our partner that I was trying to do a deal. It was like a $400 million deal in revenue, by the way, for our search business. I was flying in New York back and forth. I was doing everything I thought was right. The attorneys was, I was bringing everybody along and it was going really well and going really fast, like almost too well. And I wasn't sure why. Like, I remember asking the attorney, I was like, are we just doing a really good job? Or like, is there something off here? And at the last minute, they literally sent us an email that was like this formal tone email that was like, we are not renewing the deal. Here's why. Please reference side letter XYZ. And I was like, side letter? What is he talking about? The side letter was like this crinkled piece of paper that somebody had like found on their desk from like 10 years ago that was like, if we try our best to get this deal done, we don't, and we can't come to terms, we are allowed to get out of it. Like it was like something that's yeah. stupid. Yeah. So they basically faked their way through the negotiation process to qualify for this, to trigger the side letter because they were trying to get out of it, but they didn't want to like tarnish our relationship. Right. So they sort of like blamed us for like not being able to get to terms. And I, it was the first time that I was like, and by the way, I was sitting there thinking, I remember during the performance review season, I was like, but it wasn't my fault. I was like, I got played. (laughs) Like I got totally taken during the thing. And I didn't get a good performance for you that quarter. And I was like, oh, because I had lost a $350 million deal. Mm -hmm. And that was when I learned the lesson very quickly that like, and I say this to my team all the time too, which is, like speed and silence are your two worst enemies in a deal. And because like speed and silence. Yeah. If you know somebody's gone silent, they're talking your competition. Sure, yep. If they're trying to move too fast or something shady going on, like there's something else that's going on. So like you if it's st- moving at an unnatural pace. Yeah. It's too fast. Like it's, we're not talking like explosive offers. We're talking like they're just trying to get this done. And I'm not talking like early stage startups that are just hustling. I'm talking about like, just be suspicious of what's going on and ask questions because it should trigger some curiosity to say, why do you need to get this to move so fast? There's another motive out there that you need to go track down is what that's triggering. And so that's the lesson that I learned from that. But I remember to your point about just like emotions, I remember being more emotional with my boss at the time and being like, I can't believe you're dinging me for this. It's not my fault, the stupid side letter. Like, you know, so I remember just being a little little less self-aware then. Oh, I know exactly what I did. I went out for drinks with my coworkers. Yeah, yeah. yeah including the lawyers, by no the way. way. Yeah. Yeah. And we went out for drinks. And this is, we were in LA at the time. We had such a great group at Yahoo. And our alumni network is some of my best friends. I remember the attorney, her name is Julie. And she was just like, we had no idea. Yeah. She's like, I just found this. And Julie was like, we were out for drinks. And she was just like, you can't blame yourself. It's not your fault. No one knew about this stupid side letter. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but I can. Because yeah. it's a lesson learned. I think somebody more experienced would have probably picked up some cues. Side letters. Yes. Trigger words. Trigger word. Um, 
<laughs> you said you quit corporate after eBay. You did three years at eBay, which also must have been a really cool job. I love uh, eBay. What happened? Why'd you quit? Yeah, two reasons. One, my mom's health was one. I think two, that was also kind of the driver to go to eBay from ESPN because she was starting to be sick in general. So um, leaving ESPN, that was part of that transition. I quit corporate because I had reached burnout. And I know this topic has come up a lot with some of your guests as well. For me, burnout was just doing the same exact thing every single day that I thought I was enjoying. And then all of a sudden I dreaded it tremendously. How quickly did that transition happen? I was there for three years, but the transition, I had hired uh, an amazing executive coach. Her name was Ann Mollering, a very wonderful, wonderful executive coach. By the time I hired her and quitting was probably six months. Yeah, it was a six month process. And so it really, she had done three things with me. She had got me to the point where she, I had, was able to admit that I was in burnout to, she held me accountable to like not finding a job for a very long time and saying, you're not even allowed to look. And three, I remember sitting in my office after I quit, I literally was in my leather chair with my PJs on for probably four days. I would just go in and out of the room. Like I was just like, what did I just do? You're like mourning. I was mourning the loss of belonging to my community. I was like, did I just leave my tech community? Like, what did I just do? And it was the epiphany of a lot of us and a lot of folks out there are sort of authentically identifying themselves through their corporate brand. And to me, I was never corporate Jen. I've always been silly Jen and I had lost silly Jen. And that's why I had burnout. I wasn't honoring my values. Like I was getting stepped on every single day with my values. And it was also a combination of values getting stepped on as well as just decision-making on my part, like getting it back and forth to eBay. I had made a decision not to move to the South Bay. I was driving and I was living closer to San Francisco. I was driving an hour and a half each way. Yep. I would get home. It was a 30 minute wind down period. Yep. I was not in a good mood. Making those types of decisions matter when you're taking on these job decisions. And eBay was the most amazing place ever. Great people and everything was the same. It was really just where I was at the time. And I was doing so much hustling against my values for so long that I just hit a wall at that point. Can I double click on one of the comments that you made around your identity getting wrapped up in this? The other thing that struck me about your resume is that it does really read like a hit list of shiny logos. Let's say Jen does another run after Uber. Mm -hmm. There's no way you're going to like a startup that nobody's ever heard of, you know? It continues to be the hit list of great jobs that everybody knows about, incredible I think almost all consumer brand companies that your mother has heard of, my grandparents have heard of. I wonder, was the feeling of, okay, I have completely burned out and then I leave. I've heard past guests say like, people didn't pick up my call like they used to. You know, like you lose some sense or semblance of gravitas Mm -hmm. that you otherwise had that was so wrapped up in who you are. What I would observe on my resume to your point is at the beginning, none of that mattered Uh because I was at companies called Student Center and ICI and Yodley, who nobody had heard of, right? It was a, Yodley was an early stage fintech startup that started as a B2C, but quickly turned to a B2B to C, B2B company. And that didn't matter to me. What mattered was learning and taking risks because I was catching up based on my beginnings. I think what happened when the market fell out in 2000, 2001, you know, was thinking about going back to business school because I was feeling the sort of lack of confidence and just not having like the language. Totally. I think I needed to go establish that credibility with some bigger brands with the Yahoo's of the world. So I think I made a conscious decision to stay with stronger brands because that's going to help you with your credibility after that. And now, I mean, honestly, like if you were to ask me going forward, Uber is interesting because 
yes, it's a big brand that everybody knows, but the driver for joining Uber wasn't about the big shiny brand. It was about transitioning that out of phase one to phase two on their growth curve. And that was more appealing than anything. So it was almost getting back to where I started mm. and saying like, how can I have an impact, show up as a coach, show up as an executive coach, things like that, and make a difference where I'm not showing up at Uber as corporate gen. I'm showing up as silly gen, the coach who's hopefully forwarding our growth you know, vectors forward. If you ask me like, what's next? I find that what I've learned about myself over the years is my coaching business, I started a company called Ostruck Ventures and Ostruck is all about finding that next amazing founder that just like has this vision and a dream. And my whole value system and goals in life is to help other people realize their sure. dreams, period. That's what makes me happy. Ostruck is part seed fund, part executive coaching and part sort of BD product market fit type of services. Now, the reason I did that was because at the end of the day, like that was like the mission for me. And I wanted to make sure that I could do that. It's about just having impact. And it, was, it always was about that. And I don't think I realized that. And I think part of me with these transitions was about finding that impact. And so I'm actually much more attracted to helping scrappy founders get off the ground. Like if I could spend all my time just helping a lot of different people, I joke that I'm at my point in my career where I don't need to be a team coach anymore. I'd like to be a clinician. Like I want to go teach a bunch of people how to like swing a golf club, not just like one team and be with them for a while. I'd rather dip in, dip out. Like I feel like I have this mindset of like helping lots of people because I have the capacity to do that. And I've always been kind of a teacher at heart. And that's kind of like where my mindset is now. So for me, it's less about the brands because I also feel like, and I say this to a lot of other women, I feel great about my career. I feel like I've already made it. I don't need big brands on it anymore. Mm -hmm. And like at the end of the day, I've made it because I feel happy with where I am and totally. that's what matters. And so if I feel happy with where I am, then now it's about just like impacting everyone else going forward. And for me, I'm in sort of pay it forward mode. Yeah. If that makes sense. By the way, hopefully you didn't think I was coming down your street on the shiny logo. Thing. Oh no. Okay, okay. But I needed it. Okay. And I needed it. Okay. Like I, I, I did that consciously. Like I yeah. wanted to work for larger companies where I was incubating businesses inside of those companies, but also bring something new. Cause whether you're talking about ESPN or eBay, I was always working on like the new scrappy project inside totally. the company. So totally. that brought a great mix for me to say, well, here's a bunch of super smart people that know how to scale a business. Cause think about it prior to me going to business school, there's no brands on there that were bigger than 200 million in revenue. And yeah. so for me, I needed to go see a big company and see what that look like yeah. and what that felt like and how to build the next S curve, you know, in general. One other observation that I have on your resume is that they're generally in very similar time increments. Okay. Now that could be a complete coincidence or it could not be, mm -hmm. which they're generally around three or four years. Yeah. Uber has been four and a half, I yeah. think, and it's been the longest run you've had. Yeah. And I ask because I have a framing where every three years I re-sign up for a mental contract in a company. Yeah. Could be three, it could be four. Usually around that time frame is you've seen enough to know exactly what you're getting into and you've already accomplished some really meaningful projects and you're re-revving the engine for the next set of projects. And you've done enough where you've seen hard things 
and proven to yourself that you can accomplish and solve those hard things. That's just my framing that I kind of made up around three to four years. It caught my attention to see that in your background. I wonder if there's anything to that with you because it seems so consistent yeah, as a pattern. Par- it's partially true for sure. And I do think that, that there is sort of a run mentally. And for me, I'm like you. I think that there is a point where you either are exhausting your learnings or exhausting your impact. And you've got to either reinvent yourself within the company or and go find something else or go figure out another project to work on. And so I'd say a couple of those examples are definitely true. And then others were just random because of health transitions or because of other personal reasons. But for the most part, I would actually agree with you. When you were not working... How long was it? Two, three years? Yeah. I left eBay and sort of quit corporate and jumped off the cliff in 2015. And I was not allowed to look for a job, according to my coach, for I think two years. So I think it was from 2015 through end of 17 that I was out. Did you miss working? At the beginning, no. Toward the end, I missed having an impact, like more than like just working. I think it was more like I had realized, like back to my comment about loss of belonging and community, that my community didn't go anywhere. They were still there. Like Mm -hmm. I sort of just missed people. And so at the end of it, I just started talking to people about how I could have an impact. And that's where Ostrock was birth in general. I do try to take time off in between each of my ventures and I always joke that like eBay was a little bit of my eat, pray, love tour. I went up to Alaska. I was like so amazing, like true French frontier mm-hmm. up there and had an amazing experience. And I think you just get back to your core values. What happens is you find the space. Hopefully, you know, you like yourself because you're looking at yourself in the mirror a lot when you are, are off because mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of stuff that's going on. <laughs> and then two, you get back to your core values. You like you start hanging out with your family and your friends and you start asking questions like, should I be doing this? Should I move to the city? Like, and it really gets back to a different set of things that you probably aren't addressing as much as often as you have time for when you're working 80 hours a week. So I really enjoy that time. And now there's this term that we use in coaching and working with my executive coach, who I, I still have as well, where I spend that time integrating. There's this integration process where it's like knowing myself, knowing what's important to me, and knowing what I want my next challenge to be, like that integration's happening with my time off. And that gives me space to think about like how I want to have an impact next or what I need to learn. At each break, I learn something different about myself and the world. So it was good. What's the toughest feedback you've ever gotten? Like the one where it hit you dead between the eyes. This one wasn't the biggest. I mean, I talk too fast. <laughs> me too. Me too. But that's I get, not. That one I get consistently. But yeah, um, I think that's a funny I, one. it's yeah, it happens all the time. I'd say the biggest one is while I'm really good at taking in large amounts of information and synthesizing them, and come and maybe dwindling things down to like one to three ideas. When I push stuff back out for folks to take a look at those things, I think the hardest one was that like I still struggle to be succinct enough in my communications. And I do, it's true. Like it, I, I admit it, it just, it's hard to hear because it's like, it's, it's almost like I'm so good at like the beginning part of it, but like I can't finish it. And yeah. so it's so frustrating. Like huh. I can't, like, so I can really, sometimes I can struggle just synthesizing information down into a succinct sort of using a management consulting framework, like three things, right? And so I'm learning, this is a major over index for me, but now just hearing that, I think to answer your question, like I just feel frustrated with myself. Like I feel like I should be able to, that should feel easier. Like it's back to soccer where that's maybe that should feel like it should be more natural Mm -hmm. for me and it's not natural for me. So it's so, it's just frustrating. Like that's why it's probably more frustrating than anything. That makes sense. That's a good one. How much time do you spend 
revisiting the conversation about like building constituents internally and externally, I'm curious in your day to day, how much time are you spending internally versus externally? (laughs) I love that question. I always say that the partners are the easiest part of my job. Because everyone thinks, oh, you're this big, you're like one of the greatest deal makers. So everyone must mean you must be spending time doing deals. Exactly. I suspect that's not totally the case. No, no. You spend, the partners are the easiest part of it because really with a partner, I mean, it takes some time. With a partner, you're building trust if you don't already know them. You are trying to figure out what their goals are, like where their pain points are, like what a win-win would look like between two companies and co-creating that. That doesn't take that much time to gather that information. It still takes time to develop trust with your partners, which I think everybody should think about doing. But I probably spend, to answer your question, 80% of my time internally and 20 with partners. Because it depends on the size of the company too. If you're talking about an early stage startup company, I don't need to run things by 30 people and get buy-in and things like that. The 80% is at a bigger company like an Uber or an eBay or something like that is really about the initial buy-in. Here's our hypothesis. Here's why we pick this partner. Here's the criteria we put together to even select it. Mm -hmm. Then you go through the process of getting buy-in from, to your point, multiple different cross-functional groups, the engineers, product, marketing, to make sure everybody's on board. Then you have to make sure that there's aligned KPIs and OKRs that writes incentives in place for people to actually execute on and implement the work that needs to get done on the partnership. And then there's the ongoing performance and measurement of that partnership. And you need to make sure all these cast of characters who do not report into you, this is like a hundred people, are doing their jobs, are held accountable and are doing it probably at the highest performance. Mm So that sort of flywheel takes some time to navigate. And normally you can solve for that through creating operating processes that Makes sense. So that could be as simple as saying, we have a weekly meeting about this partner. All across functional teams are there. Let's come in. Let's report on it. Let's talk about what the next tasks are, things like that. So you can task master that away. The thing, though, with business development folks that you find is that rarely do you find a hunter and a farmer that's really good at both. So most people are either deal people or they're like partner managers. And so if you're at a company at a size that's smaller and you can't afford to hire both and you can only have one, it gets harder to scale. So you have to like be mindful of that because the partner manager mentality is going to be much more about tasks, getting stuff done, managing a lot of people, owning the relationship in general across the internal side of this job. But the deal guys and gals are usually the ones that are finance folks that are either from consulting or finance and are structuring deals and dealing just with a partner all the time. Mm-hmm. So me having to spend all that time internally is making sure that I have the right cast of characters in the right roles, but also that we're running a process and creating the systems and checks and having a set of aligned OKRs or KPIs that are going to work for this partnership. And that is all the work. Yeah. And so nine times out of 10, when I either take over a BD team or I'm hiring, I'm usually flipping the pyramid because I usually walk into a bunch of deal makers and it, there's nobody doing partner management, mm-hmm. right? In 2018, you joined Uber? 2019. 2019, yeah. what, mm-hmm. what month? I think it was July. July. Okay. When did COVID start? Ah, COVID. COVID started March. Well, I remember leaving the office on March 12th, uh, 2019 or 20? 20. No, 2020. 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So like nine months into your job. Correct. And I actually don't talk about COVID much on this show because I'd like to think that in 10 years, people are still listening to Jen talk about her Mm -hmm. and her career and her job and her life and not have to think about COVID. But nonetheless, I wanted to bring it up mainly because I can't think of a business more impacted so quickly by one thing. Business dropped 
at least 90%. Mobility was down 80 and delivery started to go up. Go up. Yes. Because people all of a sudden were delivering food. Well, you are in survival mode. So what do you think is a basic need? Food. What an interesting juxtaposition where no one was getting in a car. I mean, in San Francisco, you weren't even allowed to go outside. That's right. I was being told I can't go for a run. Yeah. Right. And then in lieu of that, you have to get everything delivered. Right. What was it like in the company at that point? Honestly, this is, it was probably one of my most amazing experiences. Uber is wired for trauma. They're wired for it's in the DNA. fire. It's in the DNA and fire drills. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever witnessed where triaging problems is Uber's superpower, period. So on day one, I just remember Andrew McDonald, my manager, and someone that's been there for about 10 years. I don't know if you know Mac, but he goes by Mac. We literally set up a daily standup and that was it. Everyone was on board. We all ended up like assigning tasks and we were basically in triage mode. What that meant from a BD perspective, as an example, is here's where trust factors really comes into play. We were about to ink a deal with Marriott, one of our biggest partners. It was commercial deal. Before COVID, we were talking dollars and cents and user experiences and how we can get delivery in the hotels and how we can do pick up and drop off in front of the hotels from the airports. As soon as COVID hit, I remember... Rick, the chief business officer at Marriott, calling me and being like, we just furloughed like half the company. You know, what are we going to do? We're not going to be able to ink the deal. And it's like, you know, real life comes into play. So you're like, exactly, no problem. But what, what was amazing was that we, meaning Uber and Marriott, were able to rally around this different environment and say, well, you know what? Let's get creative. No one was at hotels. So we ended up literally constructing this I'll call it a partnership, not a commercial partnership, but where, you know, we were leveraging, trying to keep the local restaurants in business by sending them food and turning those hotels into COVID centers, like for testing and for everything else. And then we were doing pickups and drop-offs and taking people to the hotels. So everything changed where we ended up building up this trusted relationship, you know, around just like coming together in a very different way. You know, which if you fast forward like two, three years later and you get back into the commercial mindset, now we have this, still have this amazing partnership with Marriott, but like Arnie, the CEO, actually ended up uh, unfortunately passing away during the pandemic. And I remember at the last meeting with him and he was just like, we all just did the right thing. We did the right thing. Like we took care of people together and then coming out of it, of course, we went back into like Uber Eats partnership, things like that. But what was amazing was like how we came together around others and just having an impact. We did an amazing partnership with Walgreens, Unilever. Like we changed our whole BD. There was no strategy. It was just like, who can we call to get COVID test kits? Like to people, how can we get safety shields in our cars so that people can get in them again? You know, how do we make the drivers feel safe? We did deals with Unilever to get masks to all of our drivers. Like we would get them anything we could. So everything changed, but there was not a better company to work for at the time because I think as a result of that, we reversed our sort of issue very fast because we started to create safety. Everything became about safety and trust. Mm. And so as soon as we could like pivot that way and try to make sure riders felt safe, make sure drivers could get back out there, because think about it, the livelihoods of the drivers were impacted everybody. So whatever we can do to do that, it was where we pivoted. And I thought I, the team was pretty phenomenal. What's crazy is that the build by partner framework that you used at the beginning of this episode if you throw the time equation into the build by partner, well, build goes out the window pretty quickly. Very much. And the core competence of Uber is certainly not to create masks or That's plastics. Right. And so I bet you were at the center of a lot of decision-making around 
we need to go buy and partner a bunch of stuff very, very quickly. 100%. And it reinforced, it helped reinforce, generally speaking, the speed by which partnership is a good choice if you want to move fast. Yes. And so doing those things and having the whole company understand speed related to partnership is unbelievable. And, And the set of partners that we went after, I think everyone just felt so much pride, like to be able to help here and being able to do that as fast as possible and have an impact and see it really transformed our recovery Super cool. Jen, I appreciate you. If you believe it, it's an hour and a half. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I know. I always end these things the same, you know. Right. The first... I don't know if Uber's, are you hiring anyone? Like your team sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you, yeah. are you hiring anyone? I thought and you were going to hire me after Are you this? hiring <laughs> anyone? And you do, based on the way that you were talking about your coaching practice, you sound very much like a venture capitalist, but are you hiring anyone on your team? We are hiring. Uber's hiring? Yeah, we are. Okay. We are. I mean, where we can, we're being, look, Dara has been very clear in the public. We are focused on profitability and making sure we're consistent with that. I think we're a very cost conscious company. With that said, we always have roles that come and go. And so we're trying to be opportunistic. Including on your team? Including on my team. Okay. Yeah. I always say with business development, you want to run a profit center business, not a cost center business. So I always try to make sure that the business development team is associated with profit and being able to hire is part of that. So when you hear the word grit, what do you think of? I think of my friend Meredith Kessler, who's a professional triathlete in this world. Meredith is the triumph over tragedy. I think of determination. She's the oldest triathlete out there right now. Um, She just had her second baby. She's absolutely amazing. She's seen massive career ending injuries that have come back from. And, you know, I just think of someone that gets knocked down and gets back up. And I think of someone that's super determined to have that impact and someone that's willing to go the extra mile to do it, all within the idea that they're not going to lose themselves in that experience and that they keep getting back up for back to the motive, back to the, you know, having an impact on the greater good and moving the world forward. Jen, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. That was so much fun. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week.